Alhamdulillah Alhamdulillah Alladhi hadana lihada Wa ma kunna linahtadiya Lawla an hadana Allah Wa ashadu an la ilaha illa Allah Wahdahu la sharika lah Lahu alhamd وله الملك يحيي ويميت بيده الخير وهو على كل شيء قدير يا ربي لك الحمد كما ينبغي لجلال وجهك ولعظيم سلطانك وأشهد أن محمدًا عبد الله ورسوله وصفيه وخليله أرسله الله للناس نذيرًا وبشيرًا محمد رسول الله والذين معه أشداء على الكفار لحماء بينهم لقد كان لكم في رسول الله أسوة حسنة لمن كان يرجو الله واليوم الآخر وذكر الله كثيرا من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد رشد ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد ضل ضلالا بعيدا أوصيكم ونفسي أولا بتقوى الله وطاعته وأحذركم من عسيانه ومخالفة أمره أما بعد فإن خير الحديث كتاب الله وأحسن الهدي هدي محمد وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار يقول الله عز وجل وهو أصدق القائلين وأحق منهم في كتابه الكريم سبحان الذي أصرى بعبده ليلا من المسجد الحرام إلى المسجد الأقصى الذي باركنا حوله لنريه من آياتنا إنه هو السميع البصير وآتينا موسى الكتاب وجعلناه هدى لبني إسرائيل 
ذُرِّيَّةَ Brothers and sisters, committed Muslims, these are the first three ayat of Surat Al-Isra, the 17th Surah of the Qur'an. In the first generation of Muslims, this surah was known as Surat Bani Israel because it contained information about the history of Bani Israel that was not recounted in any other surah in the Quran. The nuances of the significance of these ayat has been covered in past years here on the street. Our interest in citing these ayat today concerns the influence of power and wealth in creating a narrative of history that does not often coincide with the truth. A narrative of history that elevates human personality over the involvement of Allah in the human affair and over his command and counsel. A few days ago, we marked the anniversary of the Isra and the Mi'raj. And were it not for Allah's grounding ayat in the Qur'an about this incident, it may have been subject to competing narratives of history. And perhaps the significance of the whole incident and the event may have been lost altogether because these competing narratives may have not been complementary with each other. In our own books of history, When we look at the renditions of this event, in the Hadith literature, we may find narratives from the Mushrikeen that suggested that it was not scientifically possible, according to the knowledge of the day, for Allah's Prophet to have gone to, to have gone in one night from Makkah to Jerusalem and then come back. And then 
they were competing narratives probably with good intentions to affirm the character and the impeccability of Muhammad in delivering this message and in his speaking of the truth and in this domain of competition between the mushrikeen backed up by the Yahud and concerned Muslims it opened up space for the Israeliyat to intrude upon the dissemination of this narrative and so our hope today is to skip all of these narratives and to concentrate on what we can learn from Allah's ayat in the Quran one of the things that these ayat do is that they tell us that the night journey of Muhammad alayhi wa alihi salatu wassalam from Mecca to Jerusalem was divinely deliberate and purposeful Jerusalem at that time and even into the present day is considered to be the geographical hub and the historical heart of Bani Israel and one of the interpretations of this ayah this night journey is that Mecca and Jerusalem were meant to be twin cities and that both of them are home to masjids dedicated by Ibrahim and before we move on we are going to take an aside about the meaning of the word masjid it should be well understood that Ibrahim did not dedicate a so-called place of worship for Allah we ought in the Quranic frame of reference to better understand the meaning of masjid a masjid is a staging area for the projection of Islamic power and that projection has a spiritual component it has an economic and a financial component it has an ascetic component it has a social component it has a deliberative component it has a military component and in the end it has a political component and all of those components come together within the forum of a masjid and so when Allah's Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam dedicated a masjid for Allah that means that he is dedicating humanity's politics humanity's social affairs humanity's spiritual affairs 
humanity's deliberative affairs, humanity's military affairs to Allah. And so these two cities are twin cities. And so it was left up to the Ummah of Muhammad alayhi wa alihi salatu wasalam to do what Bani Israel was not capable of doing. That is to restore and to complete the legacy of Ibrahim. At the time that these ayat were revealed, it is said in various historical sources, the Islamic ones included, that Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa all but ceased to exist. In fact, at the time that these ayat were revealed, it was perhaps nothing but the courtyard of a church. And so the task was given to Muhammad and his Ummah to try to revive this abandoned masjid and thereby the, the purpose and the mission of the Holy Land altogether. Unfortunately, Bani Israel has never been able to forget the fact that were it not for the legacy of Muhammad and the actions of the Muslims in conformity with their commitment to Allah that restored all of their holy places. But there is a contemporary flavor to all of this. Jerusalem is considered to be the rallying cry of those who today have occupied and colonized the Holy Land. These people have ethnically cleansed the indigenous inhabitants of that area, not because it was a matter of justice, but because it was a matter of race, a matter of ethnicity, a matter of discrimination, a matter of prejudice, and a matter of their argument of Jew versus Gentile. There is a myth that has been popularized all over the world that the vast majority of non-Jews are born with an aversion for Jews. And in particular this designation today applies to the Muslims. However, if we read these ayat, we understand that people in the temporal form as well as in the divine form are judged for what they do and not how they are born. What we need to understand from all of this is that Jerusalem and Makkah are a defining line between a political orientation that is characterized by discrimination and aggression and prejudice on the one hand 
and a, and on the other hand a scripture based inclusive and justice centered islam these ayat go to the root of what is called today the arab israeli conflict especially in so far as this particular predicament has pulled into itself all of the transnational and establishment structures of the world. But again, our focus today, going back to our thesis in the very beginning, is to talk about the development of a narrative of history. We know in our world today the Jewish writers Jewish academics Jewish researchers Jewish historians are trying to reject the argument that the Holy Land belongs to them No one in history and in the current age has been more prolific in producing justifications for the temple and for the ownership of Jerusalem. And so let us take a look at what Jewish historical narratives composed by Jews say about Jewish history. Let us look into Jewish sources and see if these historical narratives meet the standard of scripture. And so now, and so now let us quote from some of these historical narratives. Now obviously we can't cover all of the three or four thousand year history of Bani Israel in these short 40 or 45 minutes. But what we can do is take a representative sample out of this historical discourse and see if it measures up to the scriptural narrative of history. And so now I'm going to quote from Jewish sources about the first temple period and the role of Prophet Dawood And keep in mind as I'm reading through this the Bani Israel doesn't consider Dawood to be a prophet, rather they consider him to be a king. And the same with his son, Sulaiman salam. Okay, so here we go, quoting from Jewish sources. Having unified the tribes under his rule, David wanted to eliminate the foreign enclave that divided his own tribe of Judah from the rest of Israel. 
At the same time, he hoped that by taking Jerusalem, which was practically outside the various tribal areas, he would create a national capital and thus avoid intertribal jealousies. Okay, so let's keep these, this quote in mind as we begin to parse it and measure it up against Allah's revealed scripture. First of all, we reiterate that they consider Dawood to be a king and not a prophet. And this automatically makes their descriptions alien to the Islamic scriptural standard and to prophetic principles. But let us go to the text of what is here. The first thing they say is that David unified the tribes under his rule. At that time, tribal segmentation was a fact of life. Just as national segmentation is a fact of life today. But this discourse doesn't go into who these tribes were. It doesn't go into how long a struggle the king of the Jews engaged in to bind all of these tribes under a single banner. Did he unify them on the authority of Allah? For as far as Muhammad is concerned, it took him 23 years to, to unify all of the Arabian tribes in the peninsula. And they offered him various other bases of unity. Ethnic bases of unity. Racial bases of unity. But he rejected all of those. And that's why he had to struggle for 23 years. And yet, in this narrative of Bani Israel, what was the role of Dawood in uniting all of these tribes? Who were they? Does a scriptural standard of inclusivity apply to them? Or did the Zionist standard of exclusivity and exclusion apply to them? None of this is mentioned. The narrative goes on to say that David wanted to eliminate the foreign enclave that divided his own tribe of Judah from the rest of Israel. What is meant by the term foreign in this narrative? Does it mean non-Jew? Does it mean non-Israeli? And was this foreign enclave indigenous to the Holy Land? And if they were, that would make the children of Israel foreigners and not the foreign enclave. And was this enclave considered to be foreign because they had a hostility to the truth and the dissemination of the notion that Allah is man's ultimate and supreme authority? Or did they have a hostility towards being declared a second-class ethnicity in the Holy Land. Again, none of this is covered in this narrative. And finally, 
This narrative says, at the same time he hoped that by taking Jerusalem, which was practically outside the various tribal areas, he would create a national capital and thus avoid interracial jealousies. Now how do we make the leap from tribal segmentation to national solidarity? Was there a definition of a nation state 3,000 years ago? Or is it that you have contemporary writers who are trying to transmigrate the definition of nation state back in time so that they can justify and rationalize the rogue nation state of Israel in our time today? Okay, and, today, and then we go on to a second narrative from the same source. And here it says, David did not exterminate the vanquished people. On the contrary, they seem to have been On the contrary, they seem to have been assigned certain administrative functions. Having captured the city and defended it successfully from Philistine assaults, David could establish it as quote unquote David's city and the capital of the united monarchy. By transferring the ark of God there from its temporary abode, he transformed Jerusalem from a Canaanite sanctuary into a city sacred to God, the religious as well as the political center of Israel. It was due to this act that Jerusalem became the chief city of the land of Israel and was frequently so throughout the ages. Moreover, in the core of his conquests, David made Jerusalem the center of an empire extending from Egypt to the Euphrates. So now let's take a look at this particular quote and see if it stands up to the scriptural standard. First of all, it says that David did not exterminate the vanquished people. This suggests that extermination was an acceptable method to overcome your enemy. In this particular instance, David did not employ this method, but it could have been that in an another instance, he might have. This is what happens when you convert a prophet into a king. Kings exterminate people, Prophets liberate the hearts and minds of people. It goes on to say, having captured the city and defended it successfully from Philistine assaults, and then transforming Jerusalem from a Canaanite sanctuary into a city sacred to God. And now this is very important. Listen carefully. Does a people's racial and ethnic character put them at odds with the prophet? What puts you on the wrong side of a prophet is rejecting Allah's authority. Not how you're born. Not where you're born. Not because you're born. 
what puts you at odds with Allah's messengers is not accepting Allah's command and counsel, rejecting His power position in the affairs of man. That's what puts you on the wrong side of a prophet. But, it, but this narrative suggests that the ethnic character of a people is more important than their divine commitment. And then finally, this narrative goes on to say that moreover in the core, in the core of his conquests, David made Jerusalem the center of an empire extending from Egypt to the Euphrates. This statement is the origin of the Eretz Israel myth that there is a kingdom that's going to extend from the Nile to the Euphrates. But when we take a look at this statement, the notion of empire and conquest does not concur with the nature and with the nature and the mission of prophets. No prophet in history governed over an empire. But when you bastardize the narrative of history and you take the scriptural rendition of history and you convert it into an imperialist and a Zionist rendition of history. And you convert your prophets into kings. Then you might make the suggestion that a prophet conquers, that a prophet builds empires, and that a prophet occupies, and the prophet takes resources that he doesn't own. Allah Ta'ala says in these ayat وَآتَيْنَا مُوسَى الْكِتَابِ وَجَعَلْنَاهُ هُدًا لِبَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ أَلَّا تَتَّخِذُوا مِن دُونِي وَكِيلًا They were given a responsibility to honor Allah's authority. And in one of the more important functions of culture and civilization and human progress, that of recording their histories. They resorted to settling scores. They resorted to racism. They resorted to exclusivism and discrimination. They resorted to trying to make themselves figure prominently in the histories that they were writing. But this is not something that only exists in the past. These are the same people today who are fabricating and inventing histories. Not only did they whitewash their own history, but they are writing your history and my history today. And unfortunately, it is this history that is being written by people who have power and who have resources that is going to become the historical record for posterity. That is going to become 
the quote-unquote official rendition of what happened today for the people in the future. Thank Allah that we have this Qur'an to measure their performance and to measure our performance. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم فاستغفروه يغفر لكم فاسترشدوه يرشدكم Alhamdulillah Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah What is going on in our world today Has everything to do between Has everything to do with the distinction Between the defective narrative of history And the divine and scriptural narrative of history The scriptural narrative of history focuses on what was right and good that people did. The defective narrative of history focuses on personalities. And if those personalities have power, then it legitimizes whatever they did. And so if you have power, whatever you've done is right and just and honorable. And so this leads us in a practical sense and in an immediate sense to what is happening in Syria. With regard to the so-called chemical attack, the media narrative is that a Russian-made Syrian jet launch some kind of a missile or projectile at an ISIS target and that the ensuing chemical cloud drifted over a small village called Khan Shaykhun where somewhere between 50 to 100 civilians were poisoned to death by a nerve or chemical agent And nearly within 24 hours, the United States National Security Office or the National Security Council developed a four-page assessment that was entitled, The Assad Regime's Use of Chemical Weapons on April 4th, 2017. And based on the strength of this assessment, the White House decided to launch 59 cruise missiles at a Syrian airbase and in addition 
their political rhetoric came out and said that no political solution is achievable in the imposed war on Syria so long as Bashar al-Assad remains the president. Okay, and so this is the media narrative. With, our, with the terminology that we've been using in this khutbah, you might suggest to yourselves that this is the defective narrative. There was only one eyewitness account about what happened in this so-called bombing that was called a chemical attack. It was witnessed by a 14-year-old girl and she said that she saw a bomb come out of a plane and crash into a building and that a mushroom cloud erupted thereafter. This was the same explanation that was given by Russian and Syrian authorities. And by the way, it immediately rules out sarin as the nerve agent because sarin is a colorless gas. And she would not have been able to see a mushroom cloud if it was colorless. An MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, forensics professor and expert, took a look at the images of the so-called chemical attack, the images of the victims, and all the other data that was gathered about the attack. And he said that it was impossible for the Syrian government to have conducted this attack because the attack came from the ground and not from the air. And all the accounts in the media suggest that the attack came from the air. But he's saying the forensic evidence suggests that it's impossible. That the physics of the cloud and the, the blast area and all of that suggests that the blast came from the ground. Scott Ritter, the former WMD or Weapons of Mass Destruction Inspector, he said that this particular Russian jet does not have the capability and the capacity to launch a chemical munition from the air. That jet, you can't put a chemical weapons missile on this kind of a jet. And then in images of the so-called chemical assault, when rescue personnel got to the site, they weren't wearing any protective equipment. And if they weren't wearing any protective equipment, they could have been exposed to the sarin just like anybody else. But they had no protective gear on. In addition to that, one of the victims who survived the attack said that he smelled what might be similar to rotting food and garlic but sarin in addition to being colorless is also odorless all of the data about sarin poisoning came from an analysis in a Turkish hospital and Turkey is hardly a non-partisan participant in this conflict. 
And then finally, there is this issue of false flag. That this was a false flag operation. The media narrative dismisses it altogether. But we know the history of ISIS. These people, they don't have a conscience. Human life, the value of human life means nothing to them. Not two weeks before the April 4th incident, they beheaded a child. They beheaded a child of all people. Did this make it into the US media? No outcry, no support, no sympathy. Did it make it out of the White House's narrative? Did we hear a condemnation from the White House? No. And then again, within the same time frame around April 4th, ISIS went out and bombed Syrian refugees who were waiting to be admitted into a government-controlled secure zone. And many, many more people were killed in this bombing than those who died of poisoning in Khan Shaykhun. Once again, no outcry in the media. Hardly a story in the mainstream media. It just went down the memory hole like everything else. Our concern here, brothers and sisters, is the narrative of this incident. And your brothers and sisters who are going to be reading about this 50 years from now, or 60, or 70, or 80 years from now. Is this narrative going to be composed by those who have power and resources? Who want to burnish the faltering legacy of a chief executive whose approval ratings are lower than they've ever been? Or is this narrative for posterity going to be constructed and written by those who have principles, by those who have the courage of conscience, by those who know that they are going to be accountable to Allah in the final analysis? And are there any Muslims who have the qualifications and the capability and the capacity to construct such a narrative? And are we up to the execution of our responsibilities in this regard? For Allah Ta'ala is the one who challenges us. Subhana alladhi asra bi'abdihi laylan min al-masjid al-harami ila al-masjid al-aqsa alladhi barakna hawlah linuriyahu min ayatina innahu huwa al-sami'u al-basir Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna attiba'ah wa arina al-batila batilan warzuqna ajtinabah Allahumma aghfir lil-mu'minina wal-mu'minat الأحياء منهم والأموات إنك قريب سميع مجيب الدعوات اللهم ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار ربنا لا تزغ قلوبنا 
بعد إذ حديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر في هسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم عباد الله إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة الله أكبر الله أكبر إشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد 